Hallo, Nelson. Alles begann mit einem gestohlenen Bild. Viele Fragen, keine Antworten. Ich wüsste nicht, was Sie mit einem WLAN-Störsender mit einer Reichweite von 1000 Kilometern anfangen könnten. Wohin wird uns dieses Rätsel führen? Das ist der Vortex. Und Papa, gib in den Vortex nicht. Mensch, uns viel Glück, Hamid. The Enigma Thrillers, die neue Original-Podcast-Serie unter Mitwirkung von Weiß und Nissan. Jetzt auf allen großen Podcast-Plattformen und auf weiß.com verfügbar. It's 1944 and five children are killed in the bombing of a Woolworths store in southeast London. But what if they had lived? Follow them through the years as they encounter all the reality of life in the 20th century. From Francis Spufford, Costa Prize-winning author of Golden Hill, comes Light Perpetual, a novel of the everyday and the miraculous, of second chances and redemptions. Light Perpetual, out now in hardback and ebook from Waterstones. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. This time we hear from the historic UK satellite ground station about ambitious plans to become a communications hub for the moon. And we chat to the European Space Agency's Head of Diversity about its recent call for para-astronauts. I actually call them para-astronauts. Well, so did I, but yes. I, I realise it's only got They're two They're not parachuting A's, astronauts, but they're para-astronauts. para-astronauts, which is the same as para-astronauts. If it's para-astronauts, that's three A's. Yes. P-A- R-A-A A. A for astronauts. Yes. But I, I do in the to... interview actually say para-astronauts. Oh, do you? So, so because, <laughs> oh, well, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll go with that. We'll the go flow. with that, you yeah. Can, you, yeah, whatever. Anyway, uh, last <laughs> time we promised we'd talk about Mars because within the space of a few weeks, the United Arab Emirates Hope Orbiter arrived at Mars, swiftly followed by China's orbiter. And then the undoubted cherry on the cake, NASA landed yet another rover on the Martian surface. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. And before we get on to the magnificent achievement that is Perseverance, let's first introduce our guest, the Canadian writer and journalist Elizabeth Howell, who's a contributing writer for Space.com, as well as for a number of other publications, and the author of several books, her latest being The Search for Life on Mars, the greatest scientific detective story of all, with her co-writer, Nicholas Booth. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Good. Now, it feels as if it's been a while since there was such a flurry of exciting activity at Mars, especially with the addition of China and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates and their first Mars missions. Um, I know the European Mars Express is still orbiting the planet. I mean, approximately, I don't want to put you on a, 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 you know, my first question, it's not a trick one, but... It's like one of those 77s seven or 49 questions. It is, it, it is, yeah. yeah. How how many, <laughs> approximately, how many other orbiters are there right now around Mars? Approximately, I would say maybe seven or eight. So there's one from oh. India, there's one from the UAE, there's one from China, clearly. 
Um, but there are several from NASA and then, of course, the one from ESA. So I would say, yeah, probably about eight, but I'd have to do the math exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Yeah. Now, the, U, the UAE orbiter, um, HOPE, that involved working with the, the US, uh, including the University of Colorado. Do you think this ushers in a more collaborative era for Mars missions? Because up until recently, we always associated and still do, to be honest, is success at Mars is America. I know. And I think that that really needs to change. Now, let's be clear, first of all, that the Americans sometimes had international instruments on their missions. So even though the hardware, the main spacecraft would be American, they would have maybe a small European payload on occasionally. But I think that now with the rise of cheaper space flight, we have smaller spacecraft, doesn't cost as much to get them into space. It really makes space more accessible for more people. And for HOPE in particular, the UAE mission, what they really want to do is to make space and science and technology, all that great stuff, accessible to as many people as possible because they want to look past an oil economy. They want to build an economy on innovation. Many years ago, I was lucky enough to go to the UAE and observe their education sector. And that's another thing that they've really been boosting since at least 2008, 2009, if not before. And so it's all integrated. And I love this idea of space being the beacon of education, because it's something that I know is done in the UK all the time. Look at Patrick Moore, right? You know, that's a really good example right there. And uh, in other countries as well. So yes, you're completely right. I agree. <laughs> yeah, and I, I must admit, I, I was, I managed to see the beginnings of Mars City being built in Dubai. And uh, it was astonishing how many women were involved in the UAE space program uh, as well. And, and there was that air of tremendous excitement in terms of being involved uh, in, in something like this, particularly going to Mars, which is not easy. Now, going to the, the, the Chinese um, orbiter, now that also has a rover, but it's not ready to land. Well, it's not due to land just yet. We've got a few more months. When it does land, will that rover, is, is, is it sort of on a par with what's gone before with NASA rovers? Or is it more a sort of, you know, a, a sort of, I hate to say a starter rover, but you know what I mean, a, a starter rover for China. It is much smaller than the Curiosity rover that landed in 2012 from NASA and also, of course, Perseverance. These are like small carts, you know, like you could ride on this if it wasn't a planetary protection problem. They're so big. But um, I, what makes China's rover unique is we don't know everything about it. They're always a little hesitant about providing all the information ahead of time. It's just their culture. But from what I understand, it's going to be sounding beneath the surface. So it's going to actually be probing a little bit for water or other resources, perhaps rocks that are below there. And uh, this could really be handy in terms of figuring out what is there for future missions. Because say we want to put some people on Mars in 2040 or 2050, right? We don't want to haul everything all the way out there if we can. We do know that there's a little bit of water, at least on the surface and potentially below, we have some preliminary results. And so if we can get some on the ground confirmation from China, this might actually help us in terms of having some future mission whenever the International Consortium can get themselves together and send people there. Uh, and just on the, the China-US uh, relationship, I guess the science will be shared at the very least because it'll be published. Exactly. The, the science will be shared. And NASA and the Americans have a longstanding tradition going back to the Cold War 
of sharing scientific information back and forth. There's a very famous mission called Apollo-Soyuz, Apollo where they had a Soviet Union and an American spacecraft each meet up in space. And that was in 1975. And so you can appreciate just how difficult things were back then compared to now. And that's how, in a sense, the International Space Station began to come together because of these kind of tentative collaborations. It's not that simple. There's a complicated history of back and forth and arguments and such, but they're still together in a sense today because they have the International Space Station. They're still working together in a very integrated sense. So what I'm trying to get at is there are definitely security concerns that need to be resolved on both sides. And there's a lot of discussion at the highest levels of security, parts that I don't have access to, obviously. I don't have those clearances, but they need to make sure that they're being careful. But once they do, the scientists, the astronauts, the people that are just on the ground without the security concerns, so to speak, as long as they observe their national security, as long as they make sure that they're abiding by all the rules, they just treat each other like people. And that's the really real beauty of these collaborations. You can build a part of a trust and then maybe over time, if we're lucky, it can expand like we saw with the Soviet Union and then Russia. Now, we heard the excitement, you know, on the, the, the landing, and there have been already some quite incredible photographs. Uh, I particularly like the one that showed, as it was descending down um, from the sky crane, I just thought they were just amazing. Was there ever any doubt that sky crane would be a success? Oh, yes, definitely. Every time you put something on Mars, it's terrifying because the atmosphere is so thin, We've only managed to get a handful of uh, spacecraft down to the surface. I mean, look at the poor Schiaparelli test lander, right? I mean, it, it was... Yeah, we, we try not to mention that. No, no, no. <laughs> but the thing is... You, you won't find much about it on the European Space Agency <laughs> website, I have to say. But the thing is about that is even if there's a failure, you learn something from it, right? It's just like a child learning how to walk. You, you pick yourself up and then you kind of learn and you get better from it, right? And so that's how I try and see the quote-unquote failures. It's not a complete disaster in the sense that you learn nothing from it, although, of course, it's devastating because you've lost that mission. So you don't want it to happen, though. You know, honestly, you don't want it to happen, even though you do learn something from it. And yes, NASA has done the sky crane before on Curiosity, but they only had done it the once. They had basically a one chance where it got down to the surface. And whether it was going to happen again, they were pretty sure it was going to work, but you just never can be completely sure because... The other complication I'll mention briefly is you can't joystick the thing all the way down to the surface. It's doing it autonomously. And if there's any errors in that big set of software code, you can imagine, right? You know, it could be the smallest thing. There was a mission once that missed Mars or didn't get to the destination completely because there was a error between metric and imperial. So it could be that yes. simple in terms of a, yeah. uh, a problem in your software code. And so they double check, they triple check. I'm sure they quintuple checked, but all the same, you just never know. And they seem to have, or maybe it's just, I can't remember now. I'm sure I looked it up and it's completely, I've forgotten it. The number of cameras that seem to be on Perseverance compared to other rovers, just because some of its shots were just like, wow. Um, has it got more cameras than other rovers? 
Oh, yes, it does have more cameras because there was a camera on the landing system. That was brand new. They didn't have that, that was before. It, yes. Again, yeah. I would have to look up the number of cameras, but it's something like three or <laughs> yes, four. Yes, I'm sorry. I keep asking <laughs> yeah. you. Good the thing is, I'm good about the, the big picture, but when it comes to the math details, I need yeah, to actually no, go and double check that stuff. <laughs> I'm asking the sort of questions that I loathe getting myself because I, I remember big picture things and that, that sort of number is like whoop. And that the crater... Um, Je- Jezero, I don't know. I've only ever read it. I've not heard it pronounced. Um, so I'm assuming it's Jezero. Um, why was that specifically chosen? Because I must admit, when I saw that aerial photo uh, of of where the rover was and the size of the crater, I just had this sort of comedian style thing of, you know, I bet just over that crater rim is a massive civilization just waiting to be discovered, but they can't take the picture of it because they're right at the bottom of that crater. So, you know, why why that crater in particular? Well, um, it was a long process. They had dozens of landing sites to look at, and the scientists argued, and I think they would argue until the end of time, unless there was a deadline attached to it, because Mars is a huge planet. But one of the things that really made Jezero Crater stand out was, first of all, it had not been visited before, so it was sort of a fresh set of eyes on something we'd only seen from orbit. And also there were a lot of signs of water. They really wanted to find a place that was rich in water in the ancient past, and that comes back to Perseverance's mission. It's doing a lot of things, clearly on the surface, but the thing it's most famous for is it's going to be picking up the most interesting rocks it sees, and it's going to be putting them aside in a cache And then the idea is ESA and NASA together will be doing what's called a sample return mission. And so discussions are ongoing. It isn't finalized yet, but basically there will be a number of spacecraft working together, some European, some NASA, and they're going to be sending a delivery down to the surface, bringing it back up again, and then sending it back to Earth which is amazing, never been done before, quite ambitious. It's amazing, but I yeah. can't help thinking they should have sorted this out earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, it's sort of like that idea of taking your hat and throwing it over the fence. I think it was Tom Sawyer who did that or someone. But anyway, you take your hat, you throw it over the fence, and then you try and go and, f- and fetch it later. <laughs> so I think that's what's going on here. You know, they can save the politicians and everybody else who has a stake. Well, you know... The rocks are sitting there. It's just a matter of going and picking them up and then hope for the best, I suppose. (laughs) Now, I am fascinated. I think a lot of people are about this drone, this uh, Ingenuity uh, drone they're going to launch, a little helicopter um, from the rover. I mean, that seems a startling thing to do, and we don't really know it's going to work. But the fact that you can fly something even in such a tenuous atmosphere as uh, Mars has. Exactly. And then if that works, and you're right, we don't know if it's going to work. That's why they call it a test helicopter. They want to be clear it could fail. But if it does not fail, if it actually makes it, what that means is now we can get aerial views. And so imagine if you are a rover mission or even a set of humans sitting on the planet and you want to scout ahead. Going ahead on foot takes time and it takes effort and it's also dangerous, clearly, because it's another planet. But if you can get a set of little flying machines to just take a look at the landscape around you, that saves so much time. And it's so much more precise than trying to look at at it from orbit because clearly they do. They have maps they generate, but those are from hundreds of kilometers in the air. 
it's much easier to see what's over the next ridge, whether that civilization is there, as you were joking before, if you actually have a drone. So they could rise out of the crater and then take a little scout around and then come back down. But obviously, we're, we're pretty sure that any civilizations, quote unquote, would be of microbes, not of uh, actual Martians. <laughs> Although, hey, maybe there's a science fiction story with their hiding. Who knows? <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of science fiction, Elon Musk seems to have very high hopes of going to Mars, um, you know, on a on a sort of schedule that makes many people go, really? Um, do you think he's being realistic? It's interesting. I had a conversation with Eric Berger, who just wrote a wonderful book about Elon Musk and his early years at SpaceX. It was really a SpaceX focus story, but obviously Elon Musk is the engine behind a lot of it. And he said, you know, we were laughing 15 years ago when they were talking about self-landing rockets and look what they're doing every day today. We were laughing when they said we're going to be running cargo missions up to the space station. Guess what they're doing today? And now they're starting to put people into space. And so I think he had the best assessment. And, you know, he's the expert. He's actually been talking to many, many SpaceX people. And he said, I think that really we're not going to see the timeline that they promise. And so I forget what the latest timeline is because it keeps changing it, but it's either the 2030s or the 2040s. Probably not that soon. Space is hard, technology is hard, but he said, give the man enough money and give him enough time. And probably he's gonna get pretty close if not get all the way, right? Because that's just what they tend to do over there. And one thing that your listeners should be watching out for is all those starship tests, because it seems like every few weeks, there's another starship model that's going up in the air and doing a bunch of flips and then trying to make it down to the ground without exploding. And they came pretty close this time, just a couple of weeks ago. And so very dramatic, very yeah. dramatic every time. But you got to remember the self-landing rockets were exploding over and over again, too. And so let's not uh, count them out. <laughs> and for you, you know, having having written this wonderful book, um, looking at Mars and, and what's going on there in such detail, what for you, do you find the most interesting aspect of this planet? Um, I think if we were to look at sort of the human side of it, because obviously the planet itself is fascinating, but none of the missions takes place in isolation. And I think we forget that because the big missions are maybe a decade apart in space and time, right? And so it takes a long time to get a generational mission out there. But we're always looking at the lessons that we learned from the ones beforehand. So to take a very simple example, the Perseverance rover is almost the same model as a Curiosity rover. It's basically the same construction, but they decided to make better wheels. And it was because the Curiosity wheels kept tearing up on all the rocks and they don't want holes in the wheels. Clearly, then the rover can't actually move. They made some adaptations for Curiosity and it's fine. You know, it's going to be going indefinitely, but they didn't want to have that same problem. And so they actually went and they found somebody um, at JPL, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, to make more robust wheels for the Mars mission. And every single time there's a Mars mission, we learn from what came beforehand, even if it's a small problem or even if it's something we can improve a little bit. I mean, that's why the cameras are so much better this time, right? I mean, Curiosity's cameras are amazing, but Perseverance's cameras just happen to be a decade newer. And so we're taking advantage of all the changes in camera technology. So it's never an isolation, always a continuum. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Howell, whose latest book, co-written with Nicholas Booth, is The Search for Life on Mars, the greatest scientific detective story of all. And we're delighted to have a couple of audiobooks of that book to give away. Just go to the Space Boffins Facebook page and Twitter account to find out how you can be in with a chance to get a copy. 
There have been some big announcements from the European Space Agency about astronauts over the last month. We learned this week that Space Boffin's favourite, Samantha Cristoforetti, is getting another flight Woo-hoo! in around 18 months' time. Meanwhile, the agency is looking for a new generation of astronauts, including para-astronauts, that's people with certain physical disabilities. Let's hear about that from ESA's Chief Diversity Officer, Acilia Valdo. I asked her why increasing diversity in the astronaut corps was so important. We pretend to talk to humanity, and so we have to represent this humanity. We cannot just talk to a little piece of humanity and to the the blue-eyes boys alone. So it's the good thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do, because we know now that uh, where you put together and there is a tension uh, among perspectives and points of view, the diversity really brings you to an innovation and to get closer to the future that we want to imagine and enable. So there is also, again, not just, okay, let's reflect humanity, but we know that this will be a winning formula to uh, be even more advanced and uh, in particular when we talk about space and exploration. So let's come back to the the, the para-astronauts. I suppose it doesn't really matter what sort of physical disabilities you have if you're in space. The, the issue maybe is getting to space. The spacesuits, the uh, spacecraft, all those sorts of things. And is that the sort of thing you'll you'll be looking into when you're selecting people, but also when you're working up this program is, you know, what point can we start flying people with physical disabilities? This is really the core of the question because we don't know yet how many are the elements that will need to be adjusted or will need to be re- redone in order to allow a person with disability to fly in space. You have to consider that in uh, in the way the the selection has been uh, uh, crafted, there are two criteria that have are really uh, at the center of uh, of the definition also the, of the position. First is safety. We cannot uh, in any way think of compromising safety if you are talking about the space station or even further. So safety is uh, is a first requirement. The second requirement is that we don't want to have uh, a tourist uh, with this ability going to space uh, just to show that we do uh, the right thing. It should really be uh, completely operational, so we should guarantee all the conditions for uh, total contribution uh, to the activities uh, uh, that we want to do in space. I, I remember talking to uh, Luca Palmatano, uh, Easter astronaut, about this uh, and he has always maintained that actually having legs is really really useless in space he'd actually rather have he'd actually rather have four arms uh in space so i mean there is a point there once you're in space it's it's so much less of a big deal than perhaps it is on earth for, for some people it's, it's absolutely that, and uh, and this is why, in a way, we have just to make sure that all the elements around really allow for this. Uh, this uh, space is not the environment we have been evolved in, and uh, anyway, we are learning to live in space, and we are even, in a way, projecting us to even having settlements one day on the moon. Or, so this is uh, an exercise that becomes by construction more and more inclusive. We are getting into a new conception of exploration that is uh, uh, making everybody part of this adventure. And again, uh, it's really, I mean, when, when you see the, the image from Voyager and you 
see the blue pale dots, five billion kilometers away, you realize that, uh, I mean, or we get this kind of uh, challenges uh, with this perspective, uh, or there will be a moment where they will be even uh, uh, meaningful in a way. Uh, do, do you think we've just got to get beyond this idea that maybe we're still stuck in, and particularly, I think, you know, us, the media, are stuck in, that an astronaut has to be like the original Mercury 7, you know, these blue-eyed white men with this, you know, exceptional physical performance and inevitably military test pilots. And astronauts are just not like that anymore. And they're not going to be like that in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, a big part of my job is also really trying to get uh, away from stereotypes. And this is, uh, you're right, a big stereotype of the uh, superhero. And it's very interesting you mentioned uh, Parmitano and uh, he always, uh, in a way, highlights that uh, they are absolutely normal people uh, and actually one of the superpowers that they have to have is patience. So they have to be very patient and uh, now it's true that there are elements uh, relating to stress, ability to make decisions. So you, you have to be quite exceptional in a sense. From a personal point of view, you have to be able to uh, live away from home for a long time. So you, it, it's probably not for everyone, but still what is uh, there, what is demanded are things that are accessible to everyone. So everyone, and they tell this particular to the to the kids and to the girls uh, that sometimes they don't even pro think they could do this, to project themselves uh, as the future, uh, in a way, people of space is something that is possible and is, is, starting, uh, is starting now. Cecilia Valdo, ESA's Chief Diversity Officer. And good news about Samantha Cristoforetti. Yeah, I'm delighted because obviously I've interviewed, as you have, we've interviewed and we've worked with her a lot over the last few years. And she's always said that she would like to go back and, and, uh, and back into space. And uh, she's such an amazing ambassador for, for ESA and for women and just space in, in general. So, yeah, I'm thrilled for her. And the most exciting thing about all this is we will have, in quick succession, Thomas Pesquet, mm -hmm. Matthias Mora, yep, and Samantha Cristoforetti, one after the other. And this has never happened before for the European Space Agency. And the hope is that there'll actually be some overlap. So we'll have two European astronauts on the space station at the same time. That's correct. And again, that's never happened before. So at least with one of those crew rotations, they're hoping there's going to be an overlap. Oh, fabulous. In a moment, how the UK could become a global hub for lunar communications. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Send us a message or you can email us podcast at spaceboffins.com. Also, do write a review on your favourite podcast platform. It's just nice to hear from you, basically. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon in July 1969, 600 million people watched on TV. That's a sixth of the world's population, although it does make you wonder what the other, the other five were doing. Yeah, we're yeah. doing. I don't know, dancing to some hippie, I just think Mamas and the Papas. Or You'd have thought they would be the same yeah. people that would be watching the moon landing. Just California, who knows, no. who knows. For those who haven't uh, read the flag, uh, we'll read the flag that's on the front landing gear of this lamb. 
here men from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, AD. We came in peace for all mankind. That signal from the moon was first received in Australia at the massive Parkes radio telescope and then relayed around the world. A key part of that infant global satellite communications network was the Goonhilly ground station in Cornwall in southwest England. It's a vast site scattered with satellite dishes. Well, now, thanks in part to money invested by the UK through ESA, the station is being upgraded for the next moon landing and other deep space missions. I've been talking to the chief technology officer at Goonhilly, Matt Cosby, who began by explaining Goonhilly's role in broadcasting that first moon landing. So there's a very small antenna on the the lander that was then relayed the video to Australia. So it was Honeysuckle Creek and Parks Radio Telescope. That was then relayed via geostationary to America. And then it was hopped across the America and then relayed to a Atlantic spacecraft hovering over the Atlantic. And then that was down into Goonhilly. And then we microwaved it to, to London and then it was distributed to to Europe. That's amazing. So that that signal, the the path it had taken. I mean, that's really you know, yes, landing on the moon is obviously a very impressive thing to do. But actually, getting that signal and and the infrastructure, the space infrastructure involved in doing that to people to people's televisions is is itself incredible. It is, and actually, one of the things that we did for the the fiftieth anniversary was research how this actually happened. Because originally, and actually for about 49 years, it was always assumed that Goonhilly 2, which is no longer with us because it, it corroded and had to be knocked down for safety reasons, actually received it from over the Indian Ocean directly from Australia. And that wasn't actually the case. After doing a lot of research, it realised it went the other way and then came over the Atlantic route, which then came into Goonhilly 1, which is still there and is the one that's uh, the famous one that was used for Telstar Arthur. So it was great to still have that infrastructure that was there used for, for the Apollo missions there when we had the celebrations in 2019. We're now looking at going back to the moon. Well, we are going back to the moon. Uh, but this time it will be a direct receiving signals from, from the moon, from satellites around the moon or, or even people on the moon. So we're preparing the antennas for doing exactly that, direct to Earth from the moon, from the moon's surface or from, from orbit. So we're working with the European Space Agency. We're working with our operations centre in Germany to ensure that the antenna is, is compatible with both the NASA and the ESA and the international endeavours. So we've got the right protocols. We've got the right frequencies. We've got the infrastructure that links us into the control centres as well. So, yes, we'll be able to do one step further than we did in 1969 and actually take them directly from the landers, the orbiters and even the rovers as well and the people, hopefully. And this is, again, you know, things have moved on, obviously, from 1969. You look at the, the dishes that were involved in receiving those signals. I mean, I've been to parks, a huge dish. You, with all, you know, with all due respect, the dishes you have at Coonhilly are not actually that big, but you can, you can receive, what, HD quality television. Yes, yeah, so to Parks, I think, is, a, is about 60-odd 60, 60 metres, and our largest ones are 32 metres. So they are, they are small in compar- comparison to Parks and also to the deep space 
network which has 70. But as part of the networks in ESA and NASA, they do have 34 and 35 meter antennas. So we do have comparable size antennas and they're the ones that will be earmarked for the communications to the moon. So those are, those are used for, for beyond in the solar system to Mars and, and beyond. So actually the moon, although it is quite a long way away, it's still closer than, than Mars. So you can use these, these antennas, these 32 meter antennas or even smaller. But what we would do with the larger antennas means you can get more data through. So you can get the HD video you can get that so it'll be much cleaner signals than it would be from 1969 and I think people will expect that nowadays they expect to be able to see it in high definition and and they wouldn't accept that it was a grainy image like they did in 1969 they'd expect it to be almost 8k by the time we get there. Does it feel exciting to be part of of this because it seems straight we're even having this conversation you're talking about providing infrastructure for having people on the moon and this is infrastructure in the uk and this is not something that's entirely government funded you're a, a company looking to do this so i mean there's a sort of air of kind of this is incredible isn't there it, it is some it is incredible i think we there will be a time where the companies private companies will start be providing the infrastructure in the same way that we did with telecommunications earth-based telecommunications the eo earth observation those all started moving away from the the public sector and moving into private sector but you need to have that public sector seed funding to be able to get you to so the private sector can take off because it's only the public sector can actually just say well you know the artemis program isn't going to go ahead let's say for argument uh, and then a lot of private investment has gone in and it's just be wasted. So you need to have you need to start doing the public um, investment and then the private sector will come come behind. But we, we work on building these antennas. We're talking about going receiving stuff from Mars, uh, from from Bepi Colombo that's going to Mercury. And it's it, sometimes you have to sort of step back. And sometimes I do have to take to the to the team just when they're sort of annoyed and whinging and so on, and just step back, you're trying to receive something from the moon or you're trying to receive something from Mars. So just step back and then just see the bigger picture and, and just see what we're actually involved in. And it actually, it is incredible. I mean, we, we as a small SME, effectively, are in a very good position to be able to support the next landing on the moon, the next human landing on the moon. So you could have the next man or woman on the moon and we could be a part of it. Now we're not. We're not going to be. There's no guarantees that we're going to be part of it. But the opportunity that that presents itself that a small private company in Cornwall can be almost at the heart of the next landing on the moon is it's just exciting. And it's and actually that's brilliant to try and attract people to the to the area, to attract people to the companies because we can, as a fifty person company, say that we're part of the next landing on the moon. And that's what we are doing. And we have conversations, daily conversations about with NASA, with ESA and, and stretching from all the company about trying to do this and supporting these ESA missions. And, and one of the, the best compliments we get is actually sitting, working with ESA as colleagues of ESA and being part of ESA. That's just fa fabulous. And, and having the young engineers down in Cornwall working with ESA um, they just get so much experience and it's, it's a buzz and it's brilliant. And they're actually, they feel that they're in part of this 
this great adventure. Matt Cosby from Goonhilly, and thanks very much to the UK Space Agency for continuing to support the podcast. Before we go, if you were listening last month, you may remember a, a difference of opinion, quite animated difference <laughs> of opinion, right? Well, let's listen back to that, about the a relative fame of John Glenn versus Alan Shepard. So I maintained that more people had heard of John Glenn than they had of Alan Shepard, I the first American in space. I disagree, but then on the Facebook page, quite a couple of people agreed with you, actually, didn't they? They did, yeah. Yeah, yeah people so agreed anyway, with me. So anyway, we did hastily finally get round to putting up a poll and uh, before we recorded this. And thank you to everybody. Quite a number of people actually voted. Basically, the question was which of the astronauts was best known? And the answer was obviously A, Alan Shepard, B, John Glenn, or C, both equal and unanimous, 66% John Well, that's Glenn. not unanimous, is oh, it? Well, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, think it's, it's so good, I had unanimous in that. Uh, 66% John Glenn, 19%, that's one in five, Alan Shepard, 15% said they were both equal. So John Glenn definitely has the greater... Which is Some extraordinary. Are, you know, unscientific. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think. I'm selected not, space fans. I'm to not be saying honest, that's I right. Thought, yeah, but considering the most of the people that follow us, are space fans, you would think it would be fifty, pretty much fifty-fifty, but it's way, way not. So yeah, yeah. it's it's. I think that's really so interesting. So why do you think John Glenn? Is it because he went up on the? Um, he was the golden boy, and he, he was went, the shuttle, and also going up as the oldest. Yeah, but he was spe- he was the, always the golden boy of the of the Mercury the spe- Seven. Was yes. it on the space station yeah. or was it was space it just shuttle. shuttle? Space shuttle before the space station. Before the space station. Yeah. yeah. No, but he was always the golden boy of the Mercury Seven. He did all the politicking. He was fantastic with the press. Yeah, maybe that's he was why. the he was he represented America, the Mer- the the golden boy, the golden blue eyed boy of America. Yeah. Yeah, Alan Shepard's more interesting, though. <laughs> he is more interesting, yes, I would I would argue that. I would absolutely argue that. Yeah. And that's it for this month. Next time we'll be celebrating both the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's flight and the 40th anniversary of the Space Shuttle, uh, its first flight, and hearing from some of the first shuttle astronauts too. So do get in touch with us on social media. And thanks again for listening. Alles begann mit einem gestohlenen Bild. Viele Fragen, keine Antworten. Ich wüsste nicht, was Sie mit einem WLAN-Störsender mit einer Reichweite von 1000 Kilometern anfangen können. Wohin wird uns dieses Rätsel führen? Erst der Vortex. Und Papa, gib ihm den Vortex nicht. Wünsche uns viel Glück, Hamid. The Enigma Thrillers, die neue Original-Podcast-Serie unter Mitwirkung von Weiss und Nissan. Jetzt auf allen großen Podcast-Plattformen und auf weiss.com verfügbar.